I spoke to a church youth group not too long ago, and I was asked to answer the question, when does life begin? And I thought I'm going to approach this topic a little bit differently than people are used to. And so I stood up in front of the 25 or so young people that were in the meeting, and I, I, I explained to them that life began at birth. I use scripture, I use science, I tried to use sort of the common lingo of the day, and I tried to convince these people that life began at birth. And then I sat down and I looked at them and I said, what do you think? And this is how that went. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. I will finish that story in just a moment. But before we do, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Peter. I'm the host of the program. And with me again is my wonderful co-host, Cameron Cote. Hello, sir. Hey, hey, it is good to be here. And for those of you tuning in on YouTube, or if you're watching somehow with video not on YouTube, I don't know how you'd be doing that. Um, but a shout out to Windsor Against Abortion and the director of Windsor Against Abortion, Catherine Eberhardt, a wonderful friend of the show. She hooked me up with a couple of sweet shirts that, that she had designed. Um, this one has three white roses and says ambassadors for the preborn. Um, which is fantastic. She, she like so many others, has such a deep love and appreciation for people like Sophie Scholl, um, who, for those of you who don't know, um, is awesome. And you should totally check around. Just Google <laughs> Sophie Scholl. She was during the Second World War. She's fantastic. Um, but yeah, big shout out to Windsor Against Abortion and Catherine Eberhardt for hooking me up with this shirt. Um, yeah, can't say enough good things about what they're doing out there in Windsor, changing minds, saving lives, transforming culture, being a part of this whole and the killing plan. So big shout out to them. Uh, but yeah, Peter, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. I was just thinking for those interested in Sophie Scholl, and this is not what this episode is going to be about. You should check out her book. It's not her book. It's a book written about her. Uh, Sophie Scholl and the White Rose, I believe it's called. Mm -hmm. Um, which is fantastic. There's a movie out as well. Cam, let's, um, I want to talk about when life begins because we really want to answer this question. Uh, how many people actually know when life begins? Maybe you're in the movement. Maybe you know precisely how to debate that, how to answer that, how to respond to common justifications. But what about some other people? Before we do that, before we do that, you have some exciting news because you are starting a new series here at the podcast, another avenue, another way for you to, to share with people effective ways that they can change minds and save lives. So what's going on, Cam? Yeah, so I, I probably wrote this poorly in the show notes, but this is the new series. This is called Back to Basics. Um, this is the first episode of this series. Uh, we're we're going to pump out episodes maybe once a month or, or that kind of thing. But it's just kind of the fundamentals of the pro-life worldview that for many people who are actively involved in the movement, they're tuning in to get the like, deep dive, like how do I debate this random philosophy student um, that I met at this random Canadian um, university. But this is for not only as a refresher for those people who are active in the movement, and, and maybe it's good to be reminded of some of the basic principles of how to have effective conversations, but it's especially geared towards people who might be relatively new to having conversations about abortion. Um, and so if that's you, then cool. This is exactly the spot to start. Um, back to basics. This is ultimately the fundamental question of the abortion conversation. If not um, the only fundamental, at least one of two or maybe three fundamental questions as to whether or not abortion directly and intentionally kills an innocent living member of the human family. 
right? Because if abortion doesn't kill an innocent human being, if human life doesn't begin until at birth or some other point, then abortion is not the human rights violation that we're making it out to be. However, if abortion does directly and intentionally kill an innocent living member of the human family, then no justification for abortion is adequate. And so that's why we figured this would be a good start to this new kind of Again, a bit of a rehash for some people who have been tuning in for a long time. Uh, we covered some of this content in other episodes, but we wanted to bring it so it's really easy for you, especially the new folks, um, to find the the fundamentals of the pro life um, fundamentals of the pro life worldview. So here we are, episode one. Love it, Kim. I I know you as a guy who loves new series so much that I thought maybe this is like a new project. <laughs> that I haven't heard about, but I'm excited to be on this journey with you, sir. Anyway, I had this presentation. I, I stood up in front of this room full of people and I tried my best to convince them from reason, from science and from scripture that human life began at birth, be begins at birth. Genesis 2, for example, God breathed life into Adam. Uh, Ezekiel 37, for those who know, there's a this this valley of dry bones that when God's breath enters into them, they, they become living. And then there's Job 34, which is a poetic way of saying uh, that um, when God takes breath away is when we die. And so I made the case that breath is the, com the key component necessary to a living human being. That key component comes at birth. That key component ends at death. And then I use science as well. I'm not going to explain exactly how because I butchered the science, but I did it with big words. And in a way that that made me sound like I knew what I was talking about. I was very confident in what I was talking about. Anyway, I sat down. I looked at them. I said, folks, what do you think? How, you know, what, what are your thoughts? And uh, they just stared at me like deer in headlights. And Cam, they knew something was wrong, but they didn't precisely know what was wrong. And so one girl, you know, shyly raised her hand and said, uh, I, I disagree with you. <laughs> and I was like, that's okay. That's good. Let's have this discussion. Um, and so what I did, Cam, was I, I split them up into groups and I said, just talk about what you think is wrong. Don't explain why it's wrong. Just talk about, just like point out, you know, one, two, three, four, five. These are the things that he said that I did, that I disliked, that I disagreed with, that I don't think works. And so we went, we did the groups, we went around, I chatted with them group by group to try to work it out. And then we got back into a big circle and I just talked about um, some of the things that they brought up and tried to present them with those good arguments that they can use when someone else um, poses questions to them or, or challenges them in when human life actually begins. And one of the things came that really stuck out to me. One of the comments that I got was one, one uh, young gentleman said, we know that scripture says that human life begins at conception, but how do we reconcile that with the science? Now, for us in the movement, for you, Cam, being someone who studied uh, far more science than I and, and perhaps some of our listeners, that sounds like a strange question because we've studied this, we've been in the movement, we've talked about this, we've been in a community where this is sort of common knowledge. But I think we often forget that um, the way that the abortion movement is promoting their agenda is by saying that the science, in a sense, is settled on this, that... Um, this is when life begins, and it's certainly not at fertilization. It's certainly not at the moment that the sperm meets the egg. And so being someone who is completely unaware of the conversation that we have in the pro-life movement, the conversation that we've talked about on episode number two, the conversation that um, scientists have, biologists have, that human life begins at fertilization, he was only aware of what he's seen on CBC News and whatever's come out of the global news lunchroom. 
And so there was a perfect opportunity for me to work through the apologetics and share when life actually begins. But as I was driving home, Cam, I was reflecting upon this question. And this question is, how many more people in my community, in my church community, in you know, sort of the sphere of influence that I am a part of who say they are pro-life would be able to respond to a terrible pro-abortion argument in a very compelling way? Right. I, I presented these arguments as if I was the most confident in what I was saying. We see that on the streets all the time. People are very confidently, uh, you know, bring forward very terrible arguments. And so how do we respond to this confidence, to these terrible arguments in, a, in an actual winsome and compelling way? Something that we've talked about a hundred times in this program and we're going to talk about again. So help us out, Cam. I don't know if you've had this experience as well. Um, maybe, maybe let me ask you this question first. Have you, have you had this experience as well in communities you've been a part of that people are just, you know, they, they know when life begins sort of intellectually, but in a way that they're able to defend it, they know not how. Yeah, I, I run into this all the time. And I think that it's happening more and more because of the fact that we are consuming information in different ways than we ever have before, right? That we have people who... Every argument is built upon any number of intuitions and intuitions that we assume everyone in, in society holds to be true. And obviously more and more of those are being challenged today, more than have ever been challenged, at, certainly within my lifetime, probably within the last couple of centuries kind of thing, right? The assumption that only girls get pregnant, the assumption that, um, I, I, there, I, I don't know. Uh, throw too many people off, but like the assumption that the, the world is a, a, a sphere, the assumption that um, uh, that life begins at fertilization. It blows my mind how many people have asked me, Cam, can you give me like a peer-reviewed article that proves human life begins at fertilization? And it's really difficult to have a peer-reviewed article on something that has been intuitively known for hundreds and hundreds of years. Right? It's like trying to find a recently published um, peer-reviewed article demonstrating that um, black people are human or, or um, children are human. Can you get me a peer-reviewed article that a four-year-old is a human being? No, because that hasn't been questioned for hundreds of years. It hasn't been questioned whether or not any different ethnicity or race or religion are living members of the human family seriously. For hundreds and hundreds of years, it, there, the scientific evidence is produced differently on these intuitions. But that doesn't mean that we can assume, safely assume that everyone believes this. This is something that there are more and more people working so um, diligently to redefine um, implantation and fertilization, all these um, technical terms, and trying to trick people basically into believing that um, human life doesn't be begin at fertilization. So how can you demonstrate it? I want to propose three ways, three simple ways that you can clarify the fact that human life begins at fertilization. And the first is actually an appeal to authority, which is a bit of a, a logical fallacy in that it doesn't demonstrate it within itself. But what it does is that it, it builds some degree of common ground with the person that you're speaking with of like, you know what? I don't know if you want to trust me. I, why would you want to trust me on when I think life begins. This isn't about what you think or what I think. This is about what is. This isn't about personal perspective, perspectives or, or opinions or feelings on this. Let's go to the experts. 
And as much as I hate to say it, the easiest way to do that is to search on Google. Google is bad for a million different reasons, but you know what? It's credible in the eyes of most people. Um, and you can literally Google, when does human life begin? And you're going to get an article from Princeton University that clearly describes the fact that human life begins at fertilization. You're going to get any number of results from all sorts of textbooks and sources and sites that confirm human life begins at fertilization. Episode two, Peter, you mentioned, covers an entire research project in which a fella interviewed thousands of professional biologists and embryologists from across America, asking them, when does human life begin? And the overwhelming majority of them, regardless of their political affiliation or um, opinions regarding abortion, acknowledge that human life begins at fertilization. And so simply ask the experts kind of is a, an efficient way of saying, you know what, you don't have to believe me, just believe the experts and what they're saying, because this is universally accepted within the scientific community. So that's point number one. Point number two, Peter, if I can crush on, is you can define this very simply with what we call the human rights argument, uh, most notably the central two questions of the human rights argument. The first question kind of lays the foundation of common equality, this notion that can we agree that all humans should get fundamental human rights? That's your first question. But the two that follow it really define and help people see in a common sense kind of way when human life begins. And it is by asking first uh, or, or following up that first question of can we agree that all humans should get fundamental human rights? Second, can we agree that if something is growing, it must be alive? To be fair, there are things that are not growing that are alive. There are one cell organisms that are living. But if something is growing, it must be alive. It is a necessary condition to the existence of growth for there to be life in some ways present there. And, and we can get into another episode about growth and division amongst um, organisms that have ceased to be alive. Um, but that's a, a more nuanced conversation. If something is growing, it must be alive. And if that living organism has human parents, he or she must be a living human as well. The offspring of human organisms are living humans. Nobody, or I don't care what you think about evolution, nobody believes that evolution happens within the span of one generation. Nobody thinks that somebody's parents go from like chimpanzees to humans like you and I. Doesn't matter what you think about evolution, even the most radical Darwinian um, evolutionist out there does not think that human organisms will reproduce to have offspring of a different species. And so you put those two questions together. If something is growing, even from one cell to two cells to four cells, it must be alive. So you have a living organism from the moment of fertilization. And if that living organism has human parents, he or she must be a living human. That's the second way of doing it. The third way of doing it is a little bit more in depth, and it simply traces your life back through composition and behavior to the moment of fertilization. My body right now as a 31-year-old dude is coordinated in a singular fashion towards the purpose and well-being of my whole. It's behaving that way. All my cells have the same genetic code, and I can trace that same genetic code and that same pattern of behavior back to the moment of fertilization, but no further. And so those are three ways that you can kind of clearly articulate that human life begins at fertilization. Appeal to authority, common sense, and tracing your life back to the moment of fertilization. I love it, sir. That was uh, succinct. That was easy to understand, very clear. 
And, uh, and those are the ways, Kim, like those aren't just the conversations we have internally here at CCBR, the podcast. Those are the very things we use when we're on the streets, when we're having those conversations and, um, and it works really well. Now, in our experience, Cam, uh, there are uh, countless different points in the stage of human development or in human development when people say that life begins. And so I'd like to touch on those just briefly, and then we can briefly respond to, okay, using some of the arguments that you presented, using some of that information, let's talk about how we can respond in an effective way. And so one of the things I think of is, I mean, that, you know, what I tried to argue in that presentation, which is at birth. And, and I think in Canada, some people appeal to the law. Some people say, well, whatever's legal, that's what we're going to, to stick with. Here in Canada, and this might be a surprise to our listeners who are not in Canada, our criminal code says, section 223, subsection 1, and I quote, a child becomes a human being within the meaning of this act when it has completely proceeded in a living state from the body of its mother whether or not it has breathed, it has an independent circulation, or the navel string is severed. And so this is, I mean, if someone in Canada is appealing to the law, if someone in Canada is appealing to, okay, whatever's sort of the status quo in terms of the legal status of a human child or, or when abortion is allowed or when it's, not, when it's not allowed, that's what I'm going to stick by. Here in Canada, that happens to be birth. How do we start to respond to someone like this? It's hard to, th to, to think that we have any sort of common ground with a person mm -hmm. who has such a radical view, but where do we begin, Cam? So I, I think the very simple common ground can be an, an acknowledgement of accuracy of the law, that, that obviously that is what is written in the law. I agree with you that that is how life is currently defined within the scope of Canadian legislation, uh, Canadian criminal code of Canada sort of thing. And, and, acknowledging that first of all they have it correct and second of all that they've they've actually thought of that before i i try to commend people all the time of like i appreciate the fact that you have actually thought about the abortion issue before because it's more the ignorance that that um bamboozles me to to use a super technical term there of of like either we have a hundred thousand tiny children that are being ripped apart in their mother's womb or we don't the stakes are high on whether or not abortion kills a human being or not. Therefore, it demands some degree of reflection, you would think at the very least. And so I try to commend them for the fact that they have at least engaged, even if incorrectly, obviously, on the abortion issue at least a little bit. From there, there's two different ways that I'll go of, obviously, on, on the one hand, we can challenge of, can we agree that that law has changed? change within the lifetime of our parents often, right? That, that abortion only became legal, uh, decriminalized in Canada for the first time in 1969. That there was further legislation um, up until 1988 when it stripped down. And so did the scientific fact of whether or not this child was human change in 1988? Did science change to facilitate the, the truth of the law? Or is the law expected to reflect reality. And the other way that you can do this is comparing nation state to nation state, right? That, that Canada is one of only two or three nations in the world in which we don't recognize life at all before birth. Is it fair to say that, well, in Germany, scientifically, they're a member of the human family after 20 weeks, but the science in Canada is different. Science in Canada says that, that if you fly from Germany um, as a pregnant mother, then your child might be a child in Germany, but they cease to be scientifically human when they arrive in Canada. No. 
And so the law doesn't reflect the scientific reality. The law, unfortunately, in this case, reflects a misunderstanding of the scientific reality. And we as Canadians, particularly our, our elected officials, are resistant to challenging that because change has consequences. Um, for those of you um, who have been involved in the pro-life movement for a while will remember Stephen Woodworth back in 2012 proposed a special committee to evaluate the accuracy of this legislation, this, this criminal code component, as to whether or not recent information would show that human life did indeed begin sometime before birth. And they didn't even want to have the conversation not because they were convinced that scientifically human life doesn't begin until after birth, but because they knew that the outcome of that subcommittee would have profound impact on whether or not it's okay to kill an innocent living member of the human family. And so it, it seems odd that somebody would even present that, but I think that that's kind of the most natural initial remark to just get them uncertain at the very least. Can we agree that there is a lack of certainty among legislators as to when human life begins, that there isn't a universal acceptance that it begins at birth. And as soon as you plant the seed of uncertainty, then you can capitalize on it with one of the, the means that I talked about before, whether it's the human rights argument, whether it's tracing life back to the moment of fertilization through the composition and, and behavior, or whether it's an appeal to authority by searching on your smartphone. Um, once you've planted that seed of doubt, you can probably capitalize on it further um, by offering better sources that can come to a better conclusion on when life begins. Just to clarify uh, for our listeners, Stephen Woodworth was a federal uh, member of parliament here in Canada. And so the, the, the they that Cam was mentioning who didn't want mm. this subcommittee uh, were our federal politicians here in Canada uh, wanted no part in such a committee that would uh, discuss and, and study something with uh, such an important outcome. Now, the second one, Cam, that I, I'd like to touch on uh, has to do with the American legal system, um, <laughs> and that is the, the argument of viability. Now, this one is endorsed by Roe versus Wade, which uh, God willing, we'll see no more after this year. But the Roe versus Wade decision legalized abortion in the United States and refers to a fetus typically becoming viable um, it refers to when a fetus becomes viable outside of the mother's uterus and says that that is the moment when essentially life begins. I mean, usually when, when we understand when abortion is legal is, is also when we understand when life begins as a society or as a group or as a legal system or as nine United States Supreme Court, Court justices or whoever it might be. But let's touch on the, the topic of viability for a minute because after viability, this, this point of um, viability when the child can exist by his or herself outside of the mother's womb, obviously will need a lot of medical supports, perhaps at, at 21, 22 weeks, uh, but still able to live outside of the mother's womb. The argument is that's when they should receive human rights or the human right to not be killed before that point when there's no chance that they will live. Um, you know, they're not really a full human being yet, not a, a full person yet, or however people like to state that. So where are we where are we going in a conversation with an argument like this? Yeah. And, and so, again, the first thing we want to do is find common ground and say, yeah, you and I agree that prior to 20, 21, 22 weeks, the child cannot live on their own. That, that's the current state of, of our medical technology at this point. That is an accurate statement to say they cannot live outside of the mother's womb prior to that stage. 
Where I want to go next is another component. We've talked about common ground analogies and questions to try to bridge the gap with folks. We've talked about the human rights argument. When I talk to somebody about this issue as a stage of development, what I want to do is I want to challenge the notion of age-based discrimination. And what I want to do is I want to ask them a very simple question. Why? I agree with you that a 15-week-old human fetus is not capable of surviving outside of the mother's womb. Why not? The answer to that question, you might have to ask why a few times, but ultimately the answer to that question comes back to because they're not old enough to be able to survive outside of the womb. And that clearly defines abortion for what it is, age-based discrimination. We are saying that you are not old enough to qualify for human rights. And we can ask the question, what makes age-based discrimination, discriminating whether or not you can kill somebody or not, dependent on their age, how is that any better than discriminating based on any other arbitrary attribute which they have no control over? Right? We've discriminated based on skin color and ethnicity and sexual orientation and all sorts of things throughout history. And thankfully, many of those injustices have come to an end because people finally realize that you can't kill somebody because of their skin color or because of their religious um, affiliation or gender identity. This is something that we can challenge on, on this issue of viability. But I think that we can also take a slightly more human approach. And this is something that I have been trying to do more and more because I find that our world is becoming increasingly callous. This, this bipartisan, this polarized society certainly doesn't serve virtue. It certainly doesn't serve the common good of being able to interact as fellow humans in a meaningful way and answer tough problems and, and challenge um, scenarios that have, have plagued society for far too long. It, it is building these two tents that there's no... Um, collaboration between. And so I, I try to take a slightly more human approach than that purely logical one of just asking, can we agree that the more needy, the more desperate, the more dependent somebody is, the more we should help them? Like, wouldn't it be more appropriate for us to put, for example, the, the disability parking spots do we put them close to the grocery store doors or do we put them as far away as possible? We put them as close as possible because we recognize that they, their mobility is compromised. We want to help them out. We want to make life easier for them. We recognize that there's a higher degree of dependency in that scenario. Obviously, the more dependent people are, the more we should be helping them right? The more dependent your child is on you, the more obligation you have to care for them. The more dependent somebody in your vehicle is, the more um, responsible you ought to be. This isn't, can't necessarily be written into law, but this is something that we used to recognize within the human family, that if somebody needed your help, help them. If somebody needed your cloak, cloak them. If somebody needed some food, feed the hungry. I, I feel like this isn't a uniquely Christian attitude that if people are hungry, feed them. If people are thirsty, give them something to drink. If people need to survive and you can help them, 
let's all make it easier for you to help them, that sort of thing. And so I try to appeal a little bit more to the humanity. Um, I, I can't say that you need to do that or, or should even do that every time. The bare bones is going back to the age-based discrimination because that is the fundamental reason why viability is not an appropriate um, timing for when human life begins. They've, they're clearly alive at that point, as we've outlined. It's just a matter of whether or not we're going to give human rights to somebody or not, and is age a, an appropriate arbiter for whether or not they get human rights. Would you use that same argument, Cam, when people bring up sentience as well, the the capacity to experience feelings and sensations and um, perhaps be self-aware, just um, the argument that people bring up, usually people say sentience and, and it could mean a whole host of things uh, if you if you pose further clarifying questions. But would you use the same sort of argument that we're talking about, you know, age-based discrimination because they haven't developed to certain points yet? Or, or do you also, um, you know, get this, this human argument in there as well? And what would that look like? So I, I will start, especially if I feel like I have a crunch for time, I will go directly towards that age-based discrimination. I agree with you that they're not sentient at this point. Why not? Why aren't they sentient? Because of their age, age-based discrimination. If I feel like I can build a little bit more rapport with them, I'm going to build common ground by saying, yeah, you know what? I, I agree that sentience is arguably a, a signature characteristic of the human species. Can we agree that there aren't very many other species, if any, which demonstrate any degree of sentience? Yeah, okay. So, so let's agree that it, it's arguably the um, signature attribute of humanity. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any pets? What do you mean? Do I have any pets? Do you have any pets at home? Are you an animal person? Yeah, I've got a dog at home. Okay. I'm curious. What would you say is the signature attribute of a dog? And and you might get a few different answers. You might get, well, dogs bark or, or dogs have fur or dogs do this or dogs do that. And ultimately what I'm getting at and what I'm going to ask them is, would you say that your dog was not a dog until it could bark? Would you say that your dog was not a dog until it had fur? Would you say this is cheap, bad biology? This is taking a very, very short look at something and saying, this does not behave like most other members of that species behave. Therefore, maybe it's not a member of that species. This is the bad biology that, that told people for years that dolphins were fish. It's the bad biology that for years caused people to think that bats were birds. So I'm like, oh, well, that thing is flying. Therefore, it must be a bird. Oh, that thing is not flying. Therefore, it can't be a bird. The idea that something can't currently manifest a very, very important attribute does not mean that that organism does not belong to that species. It just means that either they're not old enough to manifest it, they're not manifesting it at that time, or they've lost the ability to manifest that ability. You don't get rights based on your abilities. You get based on you get rights based on what you are. We don't call them sentient rights. We call them human rights, because regardless of whether you can currently manifest that particular ability or not, you're still a living member of the human family. Therefore, people shouldn't be allowed to kill you. Thank you, sir. That is a really helpful way of understanding this. And I like how you break it down. I like how you take this big concept, which could be really big when you're in the streets and sort of in the heat of the moment and you need to respond in the next five seconds for the conversation not to be awkward. Um, but I like how you break this down and make it make it particularly simple. 
especially the use of the human rights argument, that argument that we presented a little bit earlier on and has been particularly useful in the last decade of the of our street conversations here at CCBR with um, the the 25 or so staff that we have now with the staff before with the hundreds of interns that have gone through our programs. And so I want to end with this, Cam. And it's the question that I posed towards the beginning as well. And that is how many people in your church or in your community or in your sphere of pro-life influence, whatever that might be, know how to discuss when life begins. And we ask this because there are students who are going off to university. There are people going to the workforce. There are people leaving sort of, uh, I know my community is like this, maybe yours as well. You get this little insulated bubble, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but leave the community, go out into what you would call the world perhaps, um, but certainly meet people with different worldviews. How many people in your community, young people, old people would be able to go into another setting, an unfamiliar setting with people with different worldviews and be able to articulate the pro-life worldview in a compelling and winsome way, to know what sort of questions to ask, to know how to respond to some of the justifications that we talk about on the show, but also justifications that perhaps we've never mentioned before, um, but are certainly used on the streets. We hope the answer is Every single person in your community is equipped. And if they're not equipped, that's their own fault because they had the tools they needed because we provided them. Well, I suspect that that's not actually the case. And so I want to encourage you, if you're listening to this, to share this with your youth group, to share this with uh, uh, leaders in your church community, to share this with friends and family and those around you, to share this with people so that they know they have a, a sort of back to the basics look. Now, certainly can, we could talk about this, and we've done two years of, of the program so far, almost two years. Um, certainly, there's, there's a lot going on and there's a lot more to this um, in some respects. But this is, this is the simple fact of when human life begins, what we talked about, some of the, the common arguments that we hear. And so if you share this with people, the more people that hear this, the more people will be equipped to have those good conversations, to change minds, to save lives, and to be that really, really small part, even if they're not part-time in the pro-life movement, even if they're not full-time in the pro-life movement, to be that small part in transforming our culture, to change the status quo from one that supports the killing of pre-born children to the one that protects it. Cam, before I get into some of the, the final closing segments of this program, do you have any thoughts that you'd like to share? Just to, to circle back to what I laid off the beginning, the ways that you can demonstrate this in a very, very short order, one, appeal to authority, simply ask, can we agree that the experts in biology probably have the answer? Let's see what they have to say. Go to your, your school textbook or whatever it may be, Google it. Um, they will show you that human life begins at fertilization. Second, as I mentioned, the two central questions of the human rights argument, if something is growing, isn't alive, and if that living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? And three, tracing life back to the moment of fertilization by looking at the composition, basically the genetic code of that organism. I want to add a fourth one in here that I, I must admit I totally forgot earlier on, um, and that is show them a picture. Show them a picture of a human who has been killed by abortion or show them a picture of an ultrasound image, the the imaging, the 4K imaging or, or 3D imaging of, of preborn children before um, they are born is incredible. EHD.org um, or some of the, the signs that we show at CCBR showing the reality of what abortion does to preborn children, showing the evidence of what abortion does to preborn children, showing the evidence that human life is present prior to birth, 
prior to abortion and abortion directly kills that child is another very straightforward way to be able to demonstrate that human life begins before birth. Um, and, and though obviously it's, it's easiest through children that are in the embryonic or fetal stage of development, um, this can be a tool to help people understand when human life begins. Kim, before I wrap up, could you reiterate the human rights argument for people who want to write it down, who are grabbing a piece of paper and a pen right now to record this? What is the human rights argument, sir? Absolutely. Question one, can we agree that all humans should get the fundamental right to life? Question two, if something is growing, even from one cell to two cells to four cells, isn't it alive? Question three, if that living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living member of the human species? And question four, wouldn't that make abortion a human rights violation? That's how I articulate them. As you can tell, sometimes there's slightly different wording to them, but those are your, your go-to, your get-on-a-jail-free card, your, your um, heart of the pro-life conversation, whatever you want to call it. Keep those in your back pocket and at the tip of your tongue so that you can help people understand this. There you go, folks. Uh, this is the first episode of our new series, which I had no idea about until about 40 minutes ago when we started this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. This back-to-the-basics look on some of the ways that you can be a better advocate for preborn children. If you want um, just a, a particular topic touched on in this series or in our other uh, programs, do let us know. You can reach out to us on our website, ProLifeGuys.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for the ProLife Guys podcast. And, uh, and I think that's the only way you can reach out to us at this point. You can text us if you have our numbers. Um, if you don't, you can yell uh, really loud if you want other to. Options. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to uh, hit that notification bell if you're watching on YouTube. If you if you want to watch on YouTube and you're not, we are on YouTube. If you're on YouTube and you're like, I want to listen to you on my commute, you can do that as well on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite audio content. My name is Peter. That's Cam. We are the hosts of the Pro-Life Guys podcast. We hope this was helpful for you. And we hope you join us or continue to, to work in the movement, continue to have these conversations so that together we can change minds, save lives, and transform our culture.